Hello and welcome to this podcast for CPD Online. My name is Jennifer Powell. I'm a higher trainee in general adult psychiatry and I'm the trainee editor. Today I'm talking with Dr. Jacinta Tan and Dr. Steve Pierce. So thanks to both of you for agreeing to join the podcast. And we're going to be talking about ethical considerations related to COVID-19. Now, the Royal College have just published some guidelines on this topic, which you can find on their website. And we're going to be talking through some of the main issues today. So to start us off, could you perhaps introduce yourselves and explain a bit about your background and interest in this topic? Hello. Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Jacinta. I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist and I work in Wales. I'm also a clinical ethicist and I've done quite a lot of research on the issue of capacity in eating disorders, which is my special interest. I serve on the uh, executive committee of the eating disorder faculty at the college and I'm also a member of the Professional Practice and Ethics Committee in the Royal College. Yes, I'm Steve Pearce. Uh, I'm a consultant psychiatrist in a personality disorder service in uh, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. Um, I'm, I was the chair of the local clinical ethics committee for uh, several years um, and uh, I'm now vice chair of the Royal College's Professional Practice and Ethics Committee. Um, I'm also uh, currently chair of the Faculty of Medical Psychotherapy at the college. Um, my interest is in uh, responsible agency uh, and the application of ethical and philosophical principles to psychiatric practice. Great, thank you. So I think we've got quite a few things to cover today. So I'll kick off with my first question, which is for Jacinta. What ethical concerns are there about people with mental illness or intellectual disability getting equal access to services in relation to COVID-19? I think the issues with, uh, in relation to this question in COVID-19 are actually just a reflection of the general issues that we always have for these people uh, with regard to access to anything within the healthcare system. So we've always had concerns about the lack of equity of access of people with severe mental illness or intellectual disability uh, to physical health care in general. We know that uh, they generally have much poorer health. We know that we have to work a great deal harder to get them the kind of assessments and treatments in the physical health care sector that you would get if you were a member of the public. Um, much, much more easily. We know that um, they generally have poorer care and we also know that often they don't get the information that they need um, in ways that they can understand. So I think in COVID, this could become a great deal more acute because if you look at all the discourse that's going on, it's very, very much centred around your physical health. You know, vulnerability is seen as being a physical health thing. And actually, the issue of vulnerability of people who have severe mental illness or intellectual disability is probably not being talked of a great deal. There is quite a lot of emphasis on the general public keeping themselves emotionally well, but relatively little, I think, for how people with 
pre-existing mental disorders can actually keep themselves well. So I think there could be quite a lot of issues of equity of access, um, not least as we start shutting down routine care. And things like mental health care would be seen as not essential care, certainly not urgent care in most cases. And that could really uh, be a problem. Uh, although I know, again, it's an echo of what goes on in general circumstances, like, for instance, quite a lot of people with cancer aren't getting the kind of treatment that they ordinarily would have. But it certainly does affect our patients as well. I, th I think I'd like to just say something also this, about this idea of parity of esteem, which was a kind of buzzword a couple of years ago um, in the UK. The idea that uh, people with mental health difficulties, their, their difficulties should be treated as as serious as people with physical health difficulties. And I think what you're saying, Jacinta, uh, illustrates this at a time of national crisis. People tend to revert to previous ways of behaving. Um, and so people with serious mental health problems, who uh, many of whom, as you say, have comorbid physical health problems, um, uh, are not really being considered in most of the, uh, the um, directives that are coming out of national bodies. And do you think there also might be some issues about some of our patients actually getting access to things? I'm thinking things like maybe testing or, or the information that they need. Do you think that's something that we need to be paying attention to or doing anything extra to try and overcome? That's quite a difficult question for me to answer, not least because I don't really know who's able to access testing. <laughs> um, that's a very fraught issue for everybody, uh, both healthcare workers and the general public. Um, I would think that most of our patients would not be seen as a priority to receive testing. For instance, in the Faculty of Eating Disorders, which I'm you know, a member of, we've been really quite concerned about the physical vulnerability of our more seriously ill patients. But it's very hard to persuade anybody that they might perhaps be a priority for testing. So in that sense, I think it's potentially a problem. Whereas somebody who has, say, diabetes uh, or one of the identified vulnerable conditions may actually have easier access if they start to look unwell. Thanks. Just moving on, I'm, I'm thinking of one common practical issue at the moment, which uh, is about how we look after our patients who are on psychiatric wards. And in particular, I know there have been issues or worries about patients who may be suspected of having COVID or have tested positive actually not really being able to adhere to the normal social distancing or the self-isolation rules. Um, Steve, is that something that you could say something about the kind of ethical concerns about managing patients on the ward? Yeah, so uh, people who are um, constrained uh, for various reasons um, in close proximity to other people, for example, not just in psychiatric wards, but in uh, medical wards generally, of course, uh, are at higher risk and social distancing becomes more difficult. Um, 
But when people are detained uh, under the Mental Health Act, for example, um, then it becomes particularly difficult uh, because a number of those, uh, that group will uh, be unable or unwilling to take routine precautions. COVID-19 is uh, already present in several psychiatric wards around the country. Uh, many trusts have tried to discharge informal patients to increase the number of uh, the space available on the on the wards. Um, but and staff should be protected, should be provided with protective equipment when seeing patients and, of course, observe uh, the kind of uh, distancing protocols where possible. Uh, but there's a particular dilemma when detained patients may refuse to obey precautions um, or perhaps people who lack capacity may be unable to observe precautions. The risk here is of causing harm to others, uh, which in this case can provide justification for enforcing appropriate behaviour. And that's something that psychiatrists are accustomed to doing, using coercion when necessary to protect others from risks posed by their patients. So the current situation uh, should be seen as a specific example of this. Uh, ethics committees um, around the country have already been approached about this, not only in patients detained under the Mental Health Act, but also in patients who lack capacity under the Mental Capacity Act. Uh, so uh, an example would be dementia patients who uh, might wander uh, and about the use of sedation and restraint in those situations. I think the principle here is that these are situations that psychiatrists are used to dealing with uh, the risk of harm to others. And so they should be weighed in the normal way. Um, I'd like to actually also raise the issue that most uh, psychiatric um, settings, whether inpatient or outpatient, are not actually built in the same way as physical health settings. So, for instance, in a general hospital setting, there's always uh, um, physical facilities as well as protocols to deal with infectious diseases. And I don't think, or I'm not aware of, that really being thought about when we design or build mental health settings. So we think a great deal about some issues such as, you know, physical safety, aggression, risk to self and all that. But, but in fact, we are faced with an unprecedented sort of situation where we're talking about infections, um, potential need for barrier nursing and other things like that. And as far as I'm aware, inpatient settings aren't necessarily even set up to cope with that. A simple uh, issue is whether patients have ensuite bathrooms or whether they have to share bathrooms. So then you instantly get into issues of the risks of keeping people as inpatients versus the benefit that they may have in terms of being inpatient. And those are terrible dilemmas that I know psychiatrists are having to deal with about whether you should discharge patients before you think they're actually fit for discharge from a psychiatric point of view, but actually because that is going to protect the patient more from getting an infection and perhaps make it uh, less crowded in your ward, which then might be able to help you to be able to enforce social distancing more effectively. I just wanted to make another comment about um, this, this general uh, question of individual and collective needs, which I, which I think is the, the kind of 
area under which uh, these these questions of of clinical management of patients who might pose a risk to other patients comes because some of these dilemmas are we're assuming that uh, the balance between between collective and individual needs is obvious that it's obvious what one should do and I think often it's not necessarily the case and because things are moving so fast uh, it's important just to to consider if these kind of ethical decisions are being made uh, properly taking into account all the elements so an example of this might in which isn't necessarily specific to psychiatry uh, is in the, the general ban on loved ones attending dying COVID patients. So there's, there's reports coming in from around the country of people with COVID-19 dying alone because their spouses or uh, other relatives aren't um, being allowed to attend them. The, the ethical justification for this appears to be the risk of catching and spreading the coronavirus. Um, but, of course, this argument doesn't preclude medical professionals from caring for patients with appropriate PPE. And the calculation here might be that uh, medical care is more important than end-of-life care or comfort, uh, that the risks to medical staff are proportionate, but the risks to loved ones aren't, um, which can be on the basis of collective need, uh, because uh, many dying patients and their loved ones uh, would opt to be in contact with PEP as, it, as they die. So what I mean by that is that if you were to ask the, the, the person who um, is dying from COVID-19 whether they would like to have a loved one attend to them with appropriate PPE, many of them might say yes, and their loved ones, once they've been appraised of all the risks, might also say yes, in the same way that doctors are willing to attend to sick patients. Uh, with appropriate protections. So not to do so assumes that, that comfort during the dying process is sufficiently unimportant as to not be worth consideration uh, compared to the risk of catching coronavirus, which is not, I think, an ethically sustainable position. So, so I think as a minimum, trust should produce guidance for clinicians uh, to consider each case individually, taking into account the wishes of the patient and their loved ones, and, of course, the risk status of the, of the relatives. So that's going to be important if they're in a high-risk group. But I don't think it's acceptable ethically to implement a blanket ban on attendance at uh, COVID patients' deathbeds. I, I absolutely agree with you, Steve, about that. I, I do think a blanket ban is probably a reaction more than actually something that's very thought out because actually the potential harms of dying in distress alone, both for the patient and their loved ones, are probably quite great. And, and so, so, in fact, it, it is always about being able to think more broadly about potential harms, not just thinking about infection. But, of course, this potentially brings in another factor. And, of course, ethics, this is the nature of ethics. It's incredibly complex and messy. And that is our current complete lack of PPE. Uh, and, and so you may well run into the situation where in an ideal world, you would say you can equip all relatives of the dying patients with full PPE and in, in their knowledge of risk and acceptance of it, allow them to attend. But then the question is, is that depriving somebody else of the required PPE? 
And uh, I think that is one of the terrible dilemmas that's occurring even right now at the front line. But certainly I would say that Firstly, we need to learn to be creative about solutions. I have read about people who are able to communicate with loved ones using telehealth as opposed to in-person attendance and, uh, you know, also being flexible according to whether you have got enough equipment and whether patient, what the level of risk is and whether relatives are properly informed and willing to take those risks. Yeah, we've spoken quite a lot there about PPE or the lack of PPE, and I think this is a big topic for lots of healthcare workers. And I was wondering if either of you have any opinion on that, because obviously there have been instances where healthcare workers are going to work and putting themselves at risk, and healthcare workers have died. And I just wondered where, where you think the ethical issues are around that and what our obligations are as clinicians to put ourselves or our family at risk. Yeah, so so I think the BMA ethical guidance is useful here, which we can maybe um, uh, provide a link for. I think it's quite easily uh, obtainable on the internet. Um, what the BMA says, which I think is very sensible, is that there are limits to the risks that doctors should be asked to undertake when they think precautions are inadequate. So that the provision of the appropriate level of PPE, for example, um, and importantly, doctors are not under an obligation to provide care when appropriate protective measures have not been put in place. In other words, uh, Trust and the uh, NHS England clearly have an ethical duty to provide appropriate protection to healthcare workers, but um, individual clinicians should uh, are, are free to decide uh, within their uh, professional context. Um, whether the precautions are uh, adequate according to national guidelines and to make representation and they're encouraging the guidance to make representation to their trust uh, and also um, via the BMA to national bodies. I agree with that. I think that it's unacceptable what's been going on, the lack of preparedness and the fact that uh, frontline workers are without sufficient PPE. I, the guidance has just, as we speak, changed with regard to what um, personal protective equipment we should be wearing in what circumstances. It's actually a lot clearer now, which is good. It's also slightly stronger now in terms of saying how much we should be using, which is good. I think the reality on the ground has been that um, people don't always have the level of equipment that they should have. And I think this then puts each and every uh, healthcare professional in a terrible position of needing to weigh up how much they are being asked to put themselves at risk versus the work they're trying to do in terms of attending to other people. And I think it's quite a difficult ethical dilemma as well for those of us who are perhaps not working in such frontline positions, meaning we're not, for instance, necessarily caring for people who are known to have COVID or strongly suspected to have COVID, because then you start worrying whether you're just being a little bit over the top in, for instance, insisting that you have wear surgical masks uh, or wear gloves, you know. Uh, but actually, I think it's, it is an unseen enemy, which makes it one of the most 
difficult things. And I do think that healthcare professionals do have a duty both to themselves and uh, their families and to the general public to be taking precautions to ensure they don't get sick. Because when we get the virus ourselves, we are likely to be seeing a great number of people while we're asymptomatic. So even if we don't give any, you know, uh, um, we don't have any concern about our own health, it's actually not in our patients' best interest for us to get sick either. I had also one question about, and it's, again, regarding patients who are on our wards, so on the psychiatric wards, and that would be about confidentiality. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about patients' right to know when they might be at increased risk. And even if that meant breaking confidentiality of a patient, say, who had tested positive on the ward. That's a really tricky question. I think there's a few different things in play here. Firstly, covid 19 is a notifiable disease. So in terms of the ethics of it, that changes it because it goes into a different arena. Um, I I do think that the normal rules of confidentiality still, however, do hold. But at the same time, we have a duty to protect the health of other patients. So I think There are several things at play. Firstly, in an inpatient ward, you can never have complete confidentiality. So, for instance, it's usually obvious to other patients what a patient may be suffering from. You know, there's a lot of information that even with the best will in the world, patients know about each other. They will know if someone's coughing. They will know if someone's ill. But I think that we certainly have a duty to only tell other patients what we need to, that perhaps there is a risk that we want to take precautions and so on. Um, I don't think we, under any circumstances, would be justified in telling people who had it, but they might need to know for their own safety that somebody has had it. And I think that may not be very different from the common duty we have even in the public of actually knowing that we were a contact of someone who then became ill with COVID. And that's what does happen. You get told if you are known contact of somebody who came down with the illness. But I'd I'd be really interested what Steve thinks. Yeah, I think think what you say about people um, essentially... Uh, being able to figure it out is is spot on that uh, in on wards the normal social distancing applies but if someone is identified as being uh, coronavirus positive or they have COVID-19 then um, there's going to be additional precautions which will be obvious to everybody um, on the ward so uh, I don't think in practice it's going to be a question that will arise they might ask nursing staff um, so that person clearly, you know, they're being uh, kept in isolation. Uh, clearly, they have COVID, they have coronavirus. Um, I think that's where it's likely to uh, arise. And I think you're right, Jacinta. I don't think it's um, it would be ethical for uh, staff to divulge 
personal medical information. Uh, and it, notwithstanding that the other patients might well uh, become aware of it through other means. Uh, but it's still possible. The, the most important point here is that the other patients need to be protected from the infection. Um, and, uh, and that's possible without uh, telling them uh, exactly which patients have coronavirus. Thanks. We've mentioned it a little bit already, but I wanted to talk a bit more about the use of the Mental Health Act at the moment. And particularly, there are these proposed changes that might come into play uh, imminently. Most significantly, I think that an AMP might be able to detain someone under a section two or three with only one medical recommendation. Um, Jacinta, do you have any thoughts on that, about how that might affect the rights of our patients? I think this is a serious thing to do. It's obviously something be, being done because of concerns about very, very high rates of people being unable to work. I think in certain areas, it's at around 50% of staff are either self-isolating or actually unwell. So I think it's a very pragmatic measure. It does have significant um, implications for the rights of patients. It, the two doctors has always been a major safeguard against um, incorrect use of the, the Health uh, Act, against, you know, inappropriate use of the Health Act. But, you know, it may be that we need to go that way because certain patients still need the Mental Health Act section and we cannot obtain the, the required number of doctors. Sometimes the trade-off may be that if we insist that we have the two medical recommendations, that patients may have to wait a much longer time before being assessed. So there's, again, an ethical trade-off in terms of what the patient is deprived of, you know, being deprived of your liberty for a longer time before it's even determined whether you should uh, be placed on the Mental Health Act uh, does have serious implications as well. I do think, and I have made representations, that, again, we should be open to thinking creatively. So, for instance, could we retain two uh, medical recommendations if there's the possibility of using telehealth for a Mental Health Act assessment as opposed to requiring that two doctors are physically present, which could be a problem. Now, that might make doctors who are self-isolating but able to work um, more able to take part in the Mental Health uh, Act rota, for instance. And I have heard of one or two NHS trusts that are looking into it, uh, but I think it will need clarification from the government or potentially Westminster that actually a person seeing a patient is does include seeing in, by remote means. And obviously the Mental Health Act was written at a time when telehealth was not, you know, a viable option. So I think something like that may make it more possible to retain the current safeguards that we have. Um, I Obviously, we don't know what the legislation would say yet, but I would suggest that it ethically would make sense to 
to perhaps, even if you can do it with one recommendation, to say it should be done with two, if possible, and only be done with one if you can demonstrate you cannot get a second doctor or you cannot have the second doctor via uh, remote telehealth and so on. So uh, those are my suggestions anyway. But I do know that certain people are using telehealth, but I'm not sure of the legal status of that, and that would need to be clarified because it's really important that Mental Health Act sections are done in a legal way. Any thoughts on that topic as well, Steve? So I think, so So we're recording this on the 3rd of April, um, and uh, it's important to, to say that, first of all, changes have not yet been implemented, changes to the uh, Mental Health Act, but there is provision for them um, in the Emergency Coronavirus Act, so at some point in future they may come in, uh, but... Um, they, they might, uh, I think they probably will actually be dependent on local conditions, so they can be brought in at different rates in different areas. And I think, um, just to follow up on what Jacinta's saying, uh, you know, ethically, clearly, it is less ideal to have uh, only one medical representation. Um, and I would I'd, uh, I agree with what Jacinta says about um, having a, a remote uh, a remote consultation. I think that's uh, obviously preferable to only having one, having having one live and one remote consultation. Um, but I think that if if trust can uh, do two medical recommendations, they always should. I don't think this once this emergency legislation comes into force, I don't think it should be used uh, as an excuse because voters are difficult to staff. I think it should only be in an absolute. Uh, necessity. You mentioned the, the use of telemedicine or remote working and just to touch on that a bit more maybe about the way that how we are working as psychiatrists has changed in the last few weeks and particularly for community services who are now doing consultations via um, like teleconference or um, the other things we've mentioned like inpatient beds being reduced or wards closed. Uh, Jacinta, did you have any more to say about that, about how the way we are working is changing and, and whether there are any issues that might come up, perhaps in the longer term, as, a, as an outcome of this? I, I do think the way we're working has changed. As it happens, I have been part of a telehealth project in the last year, so I know a reasonable amount about doing that. Um, we've been using telehealth in the child psychiatry outpatient community context. And uh, it's now being in Wales, uh, as we speak, rapidly rolled out to all GP practices, and they are going to begin with secondary health. I do think that uh, remote working is actually a really good thing. It actually is really good in addressing the issue of equity of access, because especially in countries and areas where there's quite a high degree of rurality, you often get patients struggling to come to see you, uh, or they have to spend a lot of time or money and effort to come and see you. And also, they often cannot access services such as day patients. And telehealth actually cuts through all those things. It's, however, a very different way of working. It does rely on technology, but quite a lot 
of it is very much about us as clinicians learning to work differently. The truth is uh, most of the population are very used to using uh, telecommunication. For instance, we all FaceTime or WhatsApp our loved ones who don't live in the same town as we do. You know, most of us who have relatives abroad constantly speak to them that way. It does need a lot more consideration when it's used for clinical needs. So, for instance, you have to think about whether it's properly encrypted, whether patients can see personal information about you, for instance, your phone numbers, your IP address, and so on. But also, um, it's also about how you think about risk and how you manage risk. Because if the patient's not with you physically, uh, what would you do if they became agitated? What would you do to keep them safe um, if they disclose things to you and then, you know, left the consultation? Now, we've always been very good at managing risk in mental health. It's what we do. So I think it's just about learning to manage risk in a slightly different way because you have much fewer risks in other ways, such as you're not going to be assaulted, potentially assaulted by patients via telehealth. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> that's perhaps one positive thing about it. Um, and so I do think it is about learning to think very, very carefully about the risks and managing them to be confident as well in delivering care using a different mechanism. But I do think remote working is the way of the future. I hope that even after this crisis is over, that people will continue to be willing to offer it. And patients generally like it. It's much more acceptable. It's treatment that comes to you. And particularly with consultant psychiatrists, because we're very scarce as a resource, we don't tend to visit people in their homes. We don't tend to be very accessible to people. We tend to be sitting in a base expecting people to come to us. And I think it would actually level the playing field a great deal if we use telehealth. I do honestly think it is an opportunity. But I do think we have to be very mindful about issues of risk and of assessment of risk and ensuring that, for instance, if we use telehealth, that we get good enough visibility, good enough ability to see the patient, that we can pick up micro expressions, that we can pick up agitation, that we can, put, for instance, be able to see what they're doing with their hands and so on and so forth. Uh, so it, it is a whole different world. But increasingly, there is quite a large literature around telehealth and its efficacy. It is not less effective than um, face-to-face. Its acceptability is high. We know a lot of talking therapies are now delivered via telehealth. So I think we just need to <laughs> need to get with it, really, and, and learn to use it. So, so can I just uh, make a, 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 an additional comment? I mean, first of all, uh, it's a question of um, a party of esteem again and uh, exclusion that, that actually, uh, although... Um, technology is spreading very fast, in particular during the current crisis. Our patients are among the groups that are least likely to have the uh, the resources 
um, either in terms of um, internet access or in terms of the hardware. So we might end up uh, doing telephone consultations rather than video consultations. And then you miss an awful lot of the, uh, the, the mental state, the things that are important to mental state assessment, um, like the, the non-vocal signs that you were talking about, Jacinta. Um, but also in doing video consultation, I, I take the point about the research, but there are subtleties in this specialty, which I think might easily fall through the gaps. Um, and so although uh, there, there are advantages in terms of, for example, people with specific disorders like agoraphobia springs to mind, uh, where it, becomes, it can become difficult for, for people to uh, visit patients regularly in their home if they're currently unable to get out. Um, and so uh, some kind of... Um, Remote working is very useful in those situations. There are also drawbacks um, uh, in terms of the subtleties of the specialty, uh, which, of course, are quite important to a lot of us uh, because it's, it's about the relationship. And I think it would be wrong to, to try and maintain the idea that relationships, the quality of the relationship is not affected uh, by a lack of physical proximity. Uh, I think we're all finding that during the lockdown, that actually our relationships are changing. And also it's worth saying, there are, there are guidelines on the, um, on the Royal College website about remote working. Some, some of those, the points that are made there are tremendously important and easy to forget, for example, uh, asking about who else is in the room. Because, of course, people are in all kinds of difficult situations. They might have children in the room, they might have an abusive partner in the room. It may be difficult for them to achieve privacy. So, um, uh, it's easy to forget those kind of things. I absolutely agree, Steve. Um, I actually think telehealth is not for everybody. So when we get back to normal, it will not be for everybody, although at the moment it may be the best we can do. And uh, But I, I do think that um, if done properly, it can be really good. So, for instance... Uh, I think, for instance, it's a really, really good way to follow up with people that you already have a relationship with. And telephone, for instance, is absolutely fine if you already know the person quite well and you know how to read their tone of voice and so on and so forth. You might need to see them more if you don't know them quite as well. And I would say certainly when you're trying to assess risk, you have to see them. I think the platform that you use and the medium that you use does become quite important. If it's something that requires people to have a particular app, that could potentially be a problem. If it requires them to have a laptop, that could potentially be a problem. Um, nowadays, most people have smartphones and, you know, most children over the age of 10 or 12 have a smartphone. Even most elderly people have a smartphone and even if they're not very used to using it for telehealth um, it is possible uh, to, to do it but I absolutely agree it's not for everyone it's not for every situation but it's something that we could all learn to use a little bit more I suppose and this may be a circumstance that actually makes us use it a little bit more. We've mentioned multiple general ethical issues so far in the podcast and I think 
there are likely to be some very difficult individual ethical dilemmas that psychiatrists will be facing in their work in the next few weeks and months. Um, Steve, would you be able to tell us a bit about the role of ethics committees and how these might be able to help us? Yeah, this is covered in more detail in a there's a CPD module um, on uh, ethics committees and the application of ethical principles on um, in, in psychiatry. Uh, and although uh, bodies like the Royal College and the BMA have produced ethical guidance specifically to the COVID crisis, it tends to be fairly general and difficult to apply in specific situations. So it sets up general ethical principles. Um, but uh, many people, many doctors don't have a lot of experience in applying them in specific uh, cases. And in those situations, ethics committees um, can be very uh, important. So these are committees which uh, many trusts around the country have. There are more in acute trust than in mental health and community trusts at the moment. Uh, they, they tend to consist of groups of uh, mainly clinicians, but additionally ethicists, sometimes philosophers, often patient and carer representatives, um, and sometimes even theologians, um, and they are based in trusts. Their, their main work is normally to consider ethical dilemmas which are brought to them by clinicians. Um, and uh, sometimes they also scrutinise trust policies and procedures. Um, they will meet regularly, uh, normally face-to-face -face in their current situation. Um, those that are still meeting will obviously be doing it remotely. Um, uh, but they also have procedures to consider urgent questions. So if a, if a committee meets monthly, there'll be a way of them providing more urgent advice, either over the telephone via often the chair or by email, and there'll often be a kind of rapid reaction sub subcommittee. Uh, which will undertake to provide ethical advice within a matter of days. And those procedures should still be active in, if you're in a trust with an ethics committee. Um, so if you come across an ethical dilemma, as I think we're all doing much more at the moment, uh, then that should be available to you. It's important to say that those committees provide advice. Uh, they don't make decisions. So uh, it's the, the decision-making uh, stays with the clinical team. Um, but uh, they, the committees provide advice to help guide that. Um, they also advise trust boards and executives, and I think that function is probably particularly important at the moment during the crisis. Uh, trust having to make difficult decisions about um, resource allocation, emergency procedures, um, and these inevitably involve ethical considerations, um, and that should include uh, ethical committees in uh, their decision-making. If you don't have an ethics committee, if you're having trouble accessing ethical advice, um, then the Royal College of Psychiatrists um, has uh, the Professional Practice and Ethics Committee, which Jacinta and I both sit on. Uh, and we do consider individual ethical questions. Uh, but in the current crisis, the speed of response may be insufficient. Uh, you can get in contact via the college uh, with that committee. Um, alternatives, uh, local risk panels. Many trusts these days have risk panels, which although they don't necessarily think of themselves as, as um, providing ethical advice, uh, mostly they do actually. They provide uh, clinical consensus from senior clinicians, uh, taking into account the ethics of the situation. 
And if you don't even have one of them, then uh, I think probably the best you're going to be able to do is to consult with uh, senior colleagues, which many of us, of course, uh, are used to doing. In terms of policy, uh, national bodies putting out guidance, which isn't only ethical guidance, but also general guidance. And, of course, the GMC, in addition to BMA and uh, the Royal College and other uh, other Royal Colleges, the Royal College of Physicians, for example, has put out some um, ethical guidance as well. I think um, uh, clinical ethics committees are very useful. I was having a bit of a look at the evidence of effectiveness. There's actually very little research, but the, the bit of research I saw actually pointed to extremely high levels of satisfaction of clinicians with their clinical ethics committees, meaning that clinicians found it very, very helpful to go to clinical ethics committees with their problems. I think the other way in which clinical ethics committees actually help is if you've got a certain piece of advice from the ethics committee, it's a little bit harder for your NHS trust to ignore that advice. So it doesn't have any legal standing. It's advice. But I think a health board... uh, or a trust would be ill-advised to just ignore what their own clinical ethics committee is saying to them, or at least they'll have to give reasons why they think that um, that advice is not something they want to follow. So it can be very useful in terms of getting a little bit of backup in, uh, um, in putting your case forward for a certain thing, you know, being uh, needing how would you say, maybe being slightly unethical or needing change or not being appropriate in your particular context. So I think the ethics committees can be very supportive in terms of that. Um, I do think in this time we will have lots of very contentious ethical issues and I would say in addition to all the wonderful resources that Steve has mentioned, another one would be to talk to your faculty chair that actually all the faculty chairs are very closely involved in constant discussions going on within the Royal College about what the Royal College's response is to all the different issues that are coming up. And for instance, with regard to the PPE, the Royal College, you know, received a lot of um, representations around the issues and has issued its own advice. And again, that will help in terms of being able to point employers towards what our Royal College says and so on. So I think that's the other way you could get ethical issues raised as well. Thank you, Kate. I think that's really useful advice. And it is good to know that there is lots of support out there for people working on the front line. Definitely. Um, I think we're coming to the end of our time here today. But before we finish, I just wanted to check if either of you had any final burning comments or issues to mention that we haven't already discussed. Well, I think I think all I'd say is that this this time is producing because of the the kind of resource constraints and the urgency is producing uh, a lot of ethical dilemmas, perhaps more than most clinicians uh, certainly at a higher rate than most clinicians are used to. We're all used to, to dealing with ethical dilemmas. And so and as someone who's worked in a trust with a clinical ethics committee for 
many, many years. Um, it's always puzzled me that there are so few of them, in particular in mental health trusts. So um, I think if you don't have a, a, a clinical ethics committee in your trust, I hope this will spur you to um, think about getting one set up locally uh, once the immediate crisis is over. I agree with Steve. I actually uh, did help set up one of the early ethics committees, the one Steve then led, and I've served in three different clinical ethics committees. And I think that actually, in a way, psychiatrists are so used to dealing with ethical dilemmas that we almost don't really even notice that we do. And it, it is really helpful to think of things as ethical dilemmas to actually be able to find a framework in which to um, analyze and dissect the issues and actually be able to step back a little bit from our automatic reactions and our automatic ways of decision making. I think the thing about COVID it has, is that it's been so unusual you know, infectious diseases, for instance, is normally not on our radar at all. So it's really putting us into very, very unfamiliar territory. And that then challenges us in terms of making us notice the things that are actually ethical dilemmas, but perhaps we didn't notice before. And I would encourage people that it's really quite important to notice when things are ethical dilemmas to be able to look at all the different factors and all the risks and the benefits and so on. Uh, because I think as a whole, that then contributes to better decision making. It's as simple as that. Well, thanks again, both of you for coming on the podcast. I do really appreciate you giving up your time today. So that was Dr. Jacinta Tan and Dr. Steve Pierce. It's been a really interesting discussion. There's been lots to talk about, and I think that people will find that really useful at the moment. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, thank you. And just a reminder to CPD Online subscribers, you can gain CPD points by completing the short online test related to this podcast. So thanks again and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye.